This summer, Carolyn and I, my wife, will celebrate our 25th anniversary. Now, for many, that is a cause for a great thank you for the... In comedy, that's where you usually get the cheap applause line. But at the same time, uh, for us, it's been a, a time to, to really enjoy and reflect upon the, the times that have been wonderful, the times that have been challenging. And uh, I, I just think back... Uh, to how long ago it was that we met, and we are this summer crossing over the we've known each other and been together longer than we've been alive. Uh, you know, that there's a, there was a season where we didn't know each other. I'm, I'm sorry, I said that wrong, but it's a, we've known each other and been together longer than we've not known each other and been together. Thank you very much for playing our game. <laughs> Carolyn's getting more beautiful every day, as you've noticed. I'm getting a little nicer every day, as you've noticed. That's what she'd be glad about, actually, is, uh, you know, on those days where I go, you realize we're growing apart, you're growing more beautiful, I'm growing heavier and balder, and we're going different places on that trajectory line, and she goes, I'm just glad you're getting nicer, and you say, well, wow, how bad was it? And I say, it was pretty bad. Back to date myself, um, the Back to the Future movies were in their prime in the late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, and so one of the things I would often do, as I still do, is quote movies. And one of the things that we would always quote was this line from Biff the bully who would go, McFly! And he'd you know, grab him by the head and he'd knock him on the noggin. And so that was just something I did for fun. Uh, and then one time, Carolyn and I, in our first year of marriage, got into an argument. And she wasn't seeing it my way, the right way. And, uh, and so... I literally grabbed her by the head and went, McFly! That didn't go over so well. Um, My first experience with really disappointing my new bride, she was super angry, and she actually went for a walk. And for Carolyn to get angry, anybody who knows her knows you messed up, didn't you? I mean, if you make my wife upset, you're really really not well. And, And so I've noticed that I genuinely, over the years, have been becoming more concerned, and I say it, it's a becoming more concerned about living in ways that please my wife. And not because I think she's going to leave me, because she's extraordinarily, an extraordinarily faithful friend, and I have no concerns about that. I have been growing with her through life. We have raised two children who are both in college now. And now we are looking and saying, okay, what does it mean for us, this last section of life that we're moving into together? All of those years being together has created within me a growing desire to to please her as my friend, Uh, not pacify her to keep her from getting angry, but instead to make her happy. Uh, It is the discussion that often happens around the Christian gospel People will ask the basic question, can somebody be a Christian and not really follow what Jesus says or believe what Jesus says or live a life that is in compliance with how Jesus said to live or have beliefs that run contrary to what Jesus said is true? You'd think that this, wouldn't, this would be rather self-evident, but we live in what's termed a postmodern culture, which means that everybody kind of tends to think that they can create their own set of rights, wrongs, beliefs, ups, downs, lefts, rights. And so really people do genuinely at times think, I can believe what I want and still call myself a follower of Christ. I can live any way I want 
and call myself a follower of Christ. I have a relative that uh, he was speaking to me, and he knows I'm a minister. And one of the things he said is, you know, I'm really into Jesus. I just don't like what Jesus had to say about sexuality and my relationships with women. And so I'm going to kind of edit that out of what I believe about the gospel. And what you have to realize is that there's a whole generation of young people that think that nothing wrong with doing that, cut and paste. You know, we are the cut and paste generation. You just kind of take the parts out that bother you. Don't bother working through it or wrestling through it or trying to understand that if it's a complex passage, just kind of adjust it. You know what I mean? Just change it. You can do that. Highlight it. Change it. And you and I have to come face to face with the reality that if we're going to call ourselves technically a follower of Christ, it would mean that we would actually follow him. You can't call yourself a disciple of Christ if you're not following after him, albeit, listen, imperfectly like me as a husband, stumbling all along the way, fraught with lots of falling forward and saying, I'm sorry, struggling, working through temptations, working through failures. And it's You may think this is an interesting subject to take from today's passage, which theologians would say uh, the main theological thrust of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is a whole look at eternity, and we will talk about that. But what you have here is really an eternity sandwich. You've got eternity as the substance and the meat of this, but on two sides of this, in this passage are the subjects of obeying and pleasing God. And so it brings us to the question of what does it mean for us as 21st century North American believers to be followers of Christ? And why would this even be an issue? And where does eternity factor into the whole subject of our obedience to Christ? What we discover in this is that Paul is stressing to them that our continued faithfulness is both empowered by our obedience and at the same time, I mean, sorry, that our obedience is empowered by the concept of eternity and the security of eternity actually creates and compels us to obedience. I want to talk about two separate things. I mean, I do want to talk about obedience as is it set up to be the reason why we need to talk about eternity in the first place. And then I want to talk about the byproduct of the security that we have with regards to where we're going to be for eternity if one is a follower of Jesus. The first of two thoughts from today's passage is simply this. Obedience to Christ is presumed. When you look in the passage, what we see is that Paul's already talking about what he's done, and that has produced all this persecution in his life that's making him say, I can't wait for eternity. It is effectively that he has been obedient, obedient to the call to proclaim a gospel, which not everybody liked, or else he wouldn't be getting beat up all the time, thrown out of cities. He wouldn't be suffering for the gospel if he wasn't obediently doing what God had called him to do. Let's read the passage again. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, 
we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He who has prepared this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. They were suffering because of their obedience, but yet they were genuinely wanting out of what he was referring to as an earthly tent. He He was speaking in these metaphors. He's saying, we're in this physical body. This is painful. I'm really looking forward to being other places. Now, in this, he says, they groan. They find themselves burdened. They found themselves naked. Now, all of these things have themselves some rich theological implications. One with regards to nakedness is a reference to the fall of humanity in the garden, that we are separated from God because of this 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 sin nature in all of us. Paul speaks of this longing to be freed from the burden of his physical body. And it's important for me to point out that he's not talking about that the body itself is evil. This is what the early Gnostics believed, that that, that God had created uh, us to be spirit beings and physical, the physical world is bad or matter is evil. And Paul's not saying this because Paul would have said in other places that God, everything God created is to, is to be glorified or to be praiseworthy towards God. Everything in this life is a good thing. And yet at the same time, he finds himself longing to be resurrected. Now, what he's talking about is a resurrected body. And he says, we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And I need to make a quick stop. All right, to talk about the eternity that Paul is describing. Because oftentimes people will have, because of either uh, they've watched a lot of movies or they don't have a biblical, a rich biblical heritage to draw upon, or because they've been taught in places that, that heaven is basically us floating around like ghosts, or we might even have wings and we float on clouds, and that this is what eternity is going to look like for the believer. And what Paul is describing is that we are going to be in eternity, both body and soul. We are going to be bodily resurrected as Jesus was. One of the reasons the disciples after Easter couldn't recognize him is because his body had been glorified. He'd been in an earthly tent. He was transformed. And so they see Jesus physically different and it throws them. Some have said, some critics have said, it's obvious that they didn't see Jesus, that somebody else had come along and defrauded them. It's kind of foolish. We'll talk about that another time. But I'll say this. The, the, the experience is what we're going to experience. And there's some important things to know. Jesus is not a ghost up at the right hand of the Father. He is still physically human, fully human, and fully divine. He is bodily resurrected. When you see him you will recognize him. The, 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 the disciples, Thomas, the doubting one, saw the resurrected Christ. We're going to get to see the book of Revelation. talks about getting to see the wounds on the Savior. You're actually physically going to be there. But what you're going to have is a body free from the burdens of a sinful nature or a broken world. You may beg the question, what about people who've already passed away? A couple different passages have actually addressed that. I'll just mention them. You can look them up later if you'd like to. If you don't get it from memory, feel free to email me if you'd like the references. Luke 23, 43, Philippians 1, 23. When you die, you're temporarily 
before the, the final resurrection of the dead, you are temporarily separated from your physical body. But in the resurrection, when Jesus comes to fulfill his kingdom, when he comes, we will be reunited with our physical bodies. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Now that said, the Apostle Paul is talking about this eternity that is a certainty for believers. And he uses this hope to propel us to endure and to continue being obedient to God. The entire reason he's bringing up eternity is to encourage us. Listen, this may get difficult. There may be persecution. There may be people, and there certainly will be, according to Jesus, people who think what you think and what you believe is nuts. You are crazy. There's something wrong with you. You are so far out of step with culture. You're so far out of step with what we perceive to be reality. This is not a new experience for the 21st century believer. This is 2,000 years old. This is why Paul and his companions were mocked and while they were ultimately martyred for the faith. If they were concerned that the message wasn't getting received by the culture around them, so let's change it, they'd still be alive today. This is not what he's saying. He's saying our hope is that one day we will look back from a resurrected, non-beaten down body and say, wow, really glad we did it that way. Really glad we trusted and followed the Lord. While this passage explains Paul's hope, he presumes that every believer is called to this obedience. He, he presumes Obedience to Christ, whether or not you and I are supposed to follow Christ, is a presumption of this entire passage. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 4, 19, Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the, ch- the Son chooses to reveal him. Oh, that's a whole sermon in itself right there. I'll come back to that at another time. The sovereignty and the superiority and the supremacy of Christ. But we continue. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is funny because one of these pa- this is one of those passages that for a really long time I would read and go, I don't get that. For a number of reasons, not the least of which is my Christian experience wouldn't have been described as either restful or unburdensome. I would not find the Christian experience one of light burden. And so it was always something that made me think I was missing out. Obviously, I was not doing the Christian life right because I felt like it was very heavy burden. I was asked to do things that other people weren't asked to do, and I was told not to do things that everybody else seemed to be really enjoying. (laughs) And so the burden of the Christian life was a real thing for me. So I would read this and go, what is this all about? But what... The apostle is talking, what, I'm sorry, what Jesus is saying is when you come into relationship with him, you are yoked to him. And if you know what a yoke is, it's that which held two oxen together to plow a field. If you are pulling an, a, a plow all by yourself, then yeah, that's a lot of burden. 
But if you're yoked together with somebody who's effectively doing all the pulling, then yeah, the yoke is rather light comparatively. See, this is what makes the burden light is that when we walk through this life together, we need to enjoy the fact that we're just yoked to Jesus. He's the one doing all the pulling. Craig Barnes is the president of Princeton Seminary. He says this. When Jesus Christ invited his disciples to wear his yoke, he was talking to men from the countryside of Galilee who had seen a lot of animals pulling carts and plows. They knew that a yoke was used to bind two oxen together. Thus, to be yoked to Christ is to walk through all of life with him. Along the way, the Holy Spirit binds believers deeper and deeper into the life of Christ until they begin to live his life. Even when he takes them places, they'd rather not go. Since we are yoked to him, we have no choice and eventually no inclination to do anything other than to follow him into the other places of need of a Savior. See, this is the picture Jesus is saying. I'm, once you're my child, you're yoked with me. And so you are not carrying the burden. Now, there are times where he will allow us to carry some of it just because he wants us to experience maturity and responsibility, but it's never more than we can handle. And he does want to partner with us, but it's kind of like when my kids were little. You know, as Carolyn and I look back on 25 years, we, I do a lot of reflecting on how wonderful it was when the kids were little, and she reminds me that she was home all day while I was working two jobs, and I had it easy. <laughs> and she's right. You sweet moms, I have such a tender heart for you. And the guys that are like, I hate my job. I'm like, yeah, suck it up. You could be home all day with that drooling monster. You know what I mean? I mean, it's... It's a whole lot easier to be at work 24 hours a day than it is to have these kids going, I need you, I need you. But as the dad working two jobs, I really, really liked hanging out with my kids. And one of the things you do when you're wrestling with your son, uh, and I wouldn't wrestle with Holly much. We just did a lot of snuggling and watching Sound of Music. With Nick and I, it was, you know, fighting, but I would never, like, give him, I would never like go all out with him. He was a little kid. And sometimes I'd let him win. You know, you're like, oh, you pinned me. And, and of course he's a kid. He doesn't know any different. And he's like, ha ha ha, I win, you know. But all the while I'm doing this because I love him and because I, I, I want him to feel joy and I want him to experience and, and I want him to learn to wrestle and I want him to learn to be a warrior. So at the same time, there's a part of it where I actually am asking him to expend a little energy, but it's really in the whole covering of my desire to love him and care for him. I would never let him get hurt. We saw this most uh, evidently when, we were, when I was a youth minister. We had a relatively large youth ministry in Florida, and a lot of the boys that were in our youth ministry played football, and they would do this pile-on thing sometimes, and they would just... It was really rough. And then, of course, my son would try to dive on too. And at that point, the boys would kind of recognize that the, the, the Ryer toddler is in the mix. And so Nick thought he was being as rough as the other kids. This did not help later when he started playing football because he thought it's not going to be all that hard. It wasn't all that hard when I was little. And so three concussions later, he realizes you can't run into the pile like that. You've got to actually go with a little bit of delicacy. All of this is to, to say... Our experience as a child of God 
is overseen by a father who's concerned about our growth and development, but our burden is light because he never gives us more than we are capable. He never gives us more than we are able to carry. And yet at the same time, we recognize that we are linked to him and following him is not an option. We are, in effect, sometimes being dragged along with him. And that's sometimes how some of us feel. Like, I really don't want to go here, but what choice do I have? I'm linked to you. Followers of Christ, follow him. And in this context, Paul is presuming this. As he talks about the great truths of our eternal dwelling, he's saying, obviously, we're talking about this is what you feel when you're following Christ and you go places that are really difficult. The second thought I have for you this morning from our passage is not just his obedience to Christ presumed, but obedience to Christ, real obedience to Christ, is a, is a product. It is something that is a byproduct of you and I walking with and, and, and enjoying him. The passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 says, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So you've got the obedience that was taking place, and then the difficulties, and then the reflection on eternity, and now you're saying, in light of all of this great news, we're now going to make it our aim To please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These last two verses, verses 9 and 10, are so intrinsically linked. I will say this to you verse 9 only happens if verse 10 is something you don't fear. What I mean by that is verse 9, where it says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord. Verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Verse 10 will not be anything you look forward to if verse 9 isn't a reality in your life. In other words, verse 9, our desire to please him... Is, a, is something that has grown out of a security and an assurance of our salvation so that in verse 10, we are actually not afraid of judgment. We're not afraid of judgment because even though we do bad things, we are secure in knowing that he is never going to leave us, that Christ has made us acceptable to the Father. Put another way, we don't obey because we want We don't obey because we don't want to please the Lord. That's the reality. When we don't obey the Father, we are not desiring to please Him. So it, in my life, makes me ask, how do I get to a place where I want to please Him more? When, When I don't follow Jesus... And Paul says, you know, in light of all of this eternal great truth about where we're going to be for eternity... How do we want to please the Lord? And I'm, I'm here to encourage you today that it is not by trying hard to love him. Trying harder. 
That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you'll focus on the rest that is promised us. And there's some great metaphors in the first five verses. It talks about a building from the Father and clothing from the Son and a guarantee from the Holy Spirit. See, in Paul's mind, we are made secure because of what God has done for us. And in, in reflecting on that, living by faith and not by sight, not because we don't feel like, gosh, we really don't deserve this. We don't. He's saying Christ has secured for us all of the assurance that we need that we're going to spend eternity clothed in this heavenly body, in this perfect resurrected body. And that gives us hope to keep following. We live by faith, not by what we see. And allowing our minds to focus on what Christ has done It enables us to love him. The word in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that we have a guarantee. A guarantee. Now, by comprehending all of this afresh, what happens is, is we begin to love God and want to please him and not simply comply. Now, what I mean by that is, I don't know if you've ever been around or been a compliance Christian, but a compliance Christian is unpleasant, they are joyless, they are proud at times, and they're only at rest when they delusionally think they are doing well in obedience, at least compared to others. They may also feel worthy before God if they're lashing themselves with guilt, the guilt of their disobedience. I I call it crazy radical guilt. And uh, it will motivate compliance for a short while, but it will never produce genuine affection for Jesus that's born of his unconditional love for you. It is the difference between, I would say, prison and paradise. In prison, you are just simply trying to pacify your captor. You don't do what's correct because you love that person. You're just afraid of what they'll do to you if you don't obey them. In paradise, you're in relationship with somebody and you so can't believe you're in that context that you just want to please them. You have a friend that you want to bring joy to. See, until you get the reality that you are loved by God and secure in your relationship with God until these eternal truths that Paul is talking about here become so a part of our lives that we, are, we find ourselves amazed. Gosh, I can't believe this. The more I get to know my lovely wife, the more I find myself amazed that she married me in the first place, which only further makes me want to say, okay, I've really got to live and love her in a meaningful way. It is a paradox. But until you quit trying to be obedient so that you can sense rest in God's presence, you won't be at rest. Until you quit trying to be obedient so that you can sense rest in God's presence, you'll never be at rest. And the reason is because you'll never understand that it's because of Christ alone that you are at peace with God. To quote one of my seminary professors, the only believers who ever grow to love and please God are the ones who realize that even if they never overcome a particular struggle with disobedience, God loves them and forgave them already. Steve Brown is is trying to communicate to you and I 
that once we embrace the reality that we are safe and secure in eternity, that will produce an inclination in us, a desire in us, a hunger in us. Like Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. This desire to please him only comes as a byproduct of relationship. If you don't have a relationship that is safe and secure where you're sure that he's faithfully never going to leave you, never going to forsake you, you're completely forgiven, you're completely holy in his sight, all because of what Jesus has done for you, you're never going to develop a love for him. You're only going to want, at best, to comply with what you think is the right thing to do. How foolish to think or presume that only after we've stopped drinking too much or eating too much or being too sexually active, then we could know for sure we are a real Christian. Because right behind that obedience, right behind that place where you become holy is the pride to think, I overcame that sin. I am the one who did this. You should be more like me. If you could be more holy like me, if you could be more learned like me, then you would be at peace. And what I'm telling you is is that once you enjoy the reality of who you are in Christ, you find yourself longing for greater compliance with the word, which is effectively a greater desire to seek him and please the Lord. 25 years ago, Carolyn, this summer, Carolyn gave me this gold ring. Now, I know if you've been to a wedding, you recognize that there's a part in the service where they exchange rings. And traditionally, when I do a, uh, a ring portion of the ceremony, I will have the, the participants repeat after me. And what they are repeating after me is, receive this ring as a token and pledge of wedded love and faithfulness. And what, it, what I'm effectively doing is, when, when couples give each other rings, those rings are to symbolize that one is going to be faithful to the other. But it isn't this ring Carolyn gave me to remind me to be faithful to her. In movies every now and again, you'll see like men, and it's never women, but it's men going out to Vegas or something. They'll take their rings off so that they can fool around on their spouses. And, and over the years, what that's done is this perspective on the ring that you wear around is it's some kind of weight or some kind of anchor. And it's supposed to remind you that you can't fool around or that you're supposed to be nice to your wife. That's not the ring. The ring is Carolyn's symbol to me of her wedded love and faithfulness. When I look at my ring, I, I don't think I'm, I've got to do a good job today and this ring is to remind me to do as best I can. This ring was given to me by Carolyn as her pledge. It was a symbol, a token, to say, you wear this and remember that I'm never leaving you, that I'm going to be faithful to you, that I love you. You may think it's a a slight distinction, but it isn't. It's, It's huge. Because, see, it is the reminder of her love that makes me want to love her more. It is the reminder of her faithfulness that makes me want to be faithful to her. We, in fact, are wedded to Christ. We are bound to him. Our baptism is our ring. It is a symbol of his covenant with us, his faithfulness to us.
Craig Barnes writes this about people becoming more like Christ. It is similar to couples who have been happily married for over 50 years. They have spent so much of their lives bound together that they know each other's hidden ways, adopt each other's hidden preferences, and eventually take on a common personality that has emerged out of their loving devotion. Sometimes they even start to look like each other. Present company accepted, obviously, there. The longer we remain yoked to Christ, the more we take on his nature as children of God, and the more we realize that he has taken our humanity and restored it to the holiness for which it was created. Sometimes when people hear messages about obedience to Christ, something tinges within them. The Holy Spirit moves in them, I believe. And, and you might be saying today, there's an area of my life where I have not been following Jesus. Well, welcome. That's all of us. You're not alone. That's for darn sure. There's all, in every one of us, there's an area where we are presently not following Christ very well. And if you say, not in my life, I say, well, you've got to work on your pride. Because there's clearly something in your heart that you're not working on. You and I are, in this, are all in this place where we're saying, okay, there's an area of my life where I'm not following Christ. And if you came to Jesus in the kind of churches I came in, the, the minister would go, now come forward and we're going to have you feel bad about it for a while. And they would call that repentance, that you just come up and then you just try harder. And today I want you to recognize that God is calling you to, quote, unquote, repent. But what he's not asking you to do is just change your behavior. He's saying, you have not been pursuing me to know me, enjoy me, love me. And that's why you want to simply worry about whether or not you're complying and not worrying about whether you're pleasing me. Repentance for us is not simply the changing of behavior independent of a relationship with God. In fact, the people who are the most proud and the people who I find the most disturbing who call themselves Christians are ones that have very little grace in their life in terms of the way they deal with others, but they seem to be really holy. Hmm, they're stern for Jesus. You go, that's just really not the kind of Christian I either see described here in the passage or somebody I would even want to be around. The people that I find myself saying, I want to follow Christ with that person, it's because they humbly recognize they're broken, but they also recognize that the only place they're ever going to come to where they want to actually do what Paul says in this passage, which is because of all these great truths, we want to please the Lord. The only way they come to a place where they want to love God is in relationship with Him. When I do marriage counseling for couples that are struggling one of the first things we'll tell them to do is spend more time together. When's the last time you had a date night? Are you having a regular date night? When's the last time you went back to how it was on that first date, in my case, many 25, 26 years ago, where we sat across from the table from each other and ate pizza and got to know each other and discovered each other. And and I thought, wow, I really like this girl. When's the last time I had a context where I was actually enjoying discovering her? See, it's out of all that that was produced this affection. All these life experiences of walking together, all these challenges, these difficulties, and they just brought us closer together. This is what God is calling you to repent to. He's calling us to turn away from our isolation 
our dependence on our own good works, our dependence on our own systems of righteousness. And he's calling us to turn to him and say, I'm ready to restore friendship with you. Friendship with you is going to be my passion because friendship with you, intimacy with you is what is going to produce a desire to please you. This is what Paul is saying here. Eternity Eternity gives us endurance. The thought of eternity gives us a desire to continue on. But is it a reflection on the realities of eternity that compel us to love and please the Lord? Let us pray. Father, today we recognize that you are calling us to a depth of relationship that produces a desire to please you. And with each message, I'm humbled that there are really two people that are always being spoken to. One is someone who's never known you and or, and or is someone who has been away from you. And then there's somebody who perhaps is hard-heartedly thinking, I, I really don't need to do anything in response to this. There's nothing... I, I, I think I'm fine. And that person's often a Christian. Father, I would pray that today you would create within us, based on all that you've done for us, a renewed hunger and thirst for relationship with you that produces a desire to please you. I pray that in the communion table today we would not just go through the symbolic Remembrance of what you've done for us, but we would deeply reflect on the grace you've extended to us in Christ and would cause us to want to love you, not just comply out of fear. Oh, Lord, I pray for the security of your Holy Spirit, the, the reality of the guarantee of the salvation that you promised to your children to sink deep within the souls of my brothers and sisters today so that they might with joy love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.